Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. In 1927, Mercedes was a secretary with grand ambitions. Having been born to an English mother and a German father, she was fluent in both languages and leveraged them to personal success while working in Westminster. But Mercedes wanted more. There was a great big world out there, much of it covered in blue, and that was what she wanted to make her mark on. She began swimming in the River Thames, building up her stamina until she could swim for hours in the water. In October of 1927, she became the first woman to swim the English Channel. She had endured dense fog and frigid water temps, as well as the very real threat of passing ships that couldn't see her. But she'd done it. She'd set a world record. At least, she thought she had. Until another woman came forward soon after claiming that she had been the first woman to swim the English Channel. After an investigation, the other woman's claim had been debunked as a hoax, but its presence had poured doubt on Mercedes' own achievement. Through media pressure and a desire to prove her efforts as authentic, she took to the water once again 14 days later. This time, however, she took along proof. Not only was she followed by her trainer in a small boat, she also wore a small watch around her neck to track her time in the water. But there was a problem with this vindication swim. When she'd first crossed the channel, the water had been roughly 60 degrees Fahrenheit. This time, though, the water had dropped by 6 degrees, and although it was only slightly colder than before, it was enough of a change to take the wind out of her sails. Mercedes began her journey at 4.21 a.m. By 1 p.m., she was already feeling the effects of the cold. Her senses had dulled, and she would fall asleep for seconds at a time. Her trainer tried to keep her alert, but Mercedes found herself in a constant loop of wakefulness followed by seconds of sleep. After an hour and a half without any real progress, her trainer lowered a ladder into the water. Mercedes refused to give up. She swam away from the boat, but her body knew that it was time to stop. Just before 3 p.m., she took hold of the ladder, and her trainer pulled her into the boat. She had failed to swim the channel for a second time, but her efforts had validated her first. No one questioned her any longer. That said, the idea of a sports celebrity at the time was pretty new. There were no Wheaties boxes or sneaker endorsements yet, and come the next news cycle, she'd be another forgotten name in history. There was the watch, though, the one she had worn around her neck as she attempted to cross the English Channel that second time. Now, watches at the time were made with hinged backs, so wearers and technicians could easily access the movements inside. They were designed for function over form, but that left them vulnerable. In tropical climates, and when submerged in water, The watches would often malfunction due to the moisture getting inside. The watch around Mercedes' neck, though, was brand new. It was named after a watertight shell, and its design was revolutionary. For example, the crown on the side could be screwed down to create a seal. And rather than use a hinged back to hide the components, its front and back panels were screwed into place. The result was a waterproof and dustproof watch. After her swim, and after everyone saw how her watch was still working perfectly when she got out of the water, Mercedes Gleitz became its spokesperson. She was featured in print advertisements describing the most rigorous stress test any watch had ever undergone before. Ten hours in the water, 
a testament to the engineering feat that was this brand new watch. Gleitz didn't know it at the time, but she not only cemented her own legacy as an enduring name, but also one of the most famous watch brands in the world. She helped take them from a struggling two-man operation all the way to a multi-billion dollar titan of luxury jewelry. Thanks to Mercedes Gleitz, a new watch company was able to keep its head above water. A company called Rolex. Animals have been used in war since the beginning of time. Hannibal, the Carthaginian general, famously used war elephants as he crossed the Alps, conquering much of Europe in the process. Though you wouldn't see them in use today, elephants were a common sight on the battlefield. They functioned much like today's tanks, plowing through scores of soldiers and intimidating horses. The U.S. Army has also utilized unusual animals in its military campaigns. During World War II, for example, napalm charges were strapped to thousands of bats bound for Japan. Unfortunately, a few got loose and ended up bombing an Air Force hangar, and that was the end of the bat bomb idea. Dolphins have been trained by the Navy to find underwater mines and interfere with enemy divers. But perhaps the most unusual and ingenious use of animals in the military came during the 1830s. As Americans migrated west, they quickly discovered how nefarious the terrain was compared to the developed cities back in the east. There were deserts and mountains to cross. The environment was often too harsh for horses to navigate safely. But one man, Lieutenant George Crossman of the United States Army, wrote back to Washington, D.C. with an idea. Camels. Camels could carry hundreds of pounds on their backs and go for tens of miles with very little food or water. And unlike horses, they didn't need metal shoes to protect their hooves either. But Crossman's idea didn't pan out at first. His superiors in Washington didn't see the benefit. However, years later, after Crossman had achieved the rank of major, he spoke to Major Henry Wayne of the Army's Quartermaster Department. Major Wayne knew how useful camels could be as well. On Crossman's suggestion, Wayne wrote to the War Department. His letter found its way to the desk of Senator Jefferson Davis, future president of the Confederate States and a major player during the Civil War. It took several years, but in 1853, Davis was able to convince Congress to approve funding for Wayne's camels. $30,000 were appropriated for the project, and Wayne was sent to the Navy ship, the USS Supply, to acquire them. He first traveled to London, then Paris, to speak with camel experts and zookeepers. He needed to learn how to handle the animals once they were on board the ship. From there, he traveled to Tunisia. For five months, Wayne and the supplies commander, Lieutenant David Porter, sailed to Greece, Turkey, and Egypt, purchasing camels along the way. With 33 camels in tow, they traveled back to America in roughly three months. The ship had to deal with choppy seas and heavy storms much of the way. But on May 14th, the USS Supply docked in Texas, finally home. From there, the animals were marched for almost 200 miles to a camp much like the ones Wayne had encountered in the Middle East. Here, he could train his camels to perform specific military duties. He sent a caravan of three wagons pulled by six mules each to San Antonio. Along for the trip were six of his camels to measure against the mules. Their mission? Bring a supply of oats back to the camp. The wagons were only able to carry about 1,800 pounds of oats back to the camp in five days. The camels, however, could carry more than double that amount in half the time. The test was a success. Wayne continued to put the animals through their paces, 
and was impressed over and over again with their ability to handle the southwestern terrain. Meanwhile, Porter returned to Egypt for 41 more camels, which he brought back at the end of January 1857. However, a few months later, newly elected President James Buchanan had Wayne moved back to D.C. Without him there to move the camel experiment along, the animals remained dormant at the camp. Then, the westward expansion hit a major milestone. A railroad was commissioned by Congress to build a more direct route between New Mexico and California. Horses alone wouldn't be able to make it that far. But luckily for California militiamen Edward Beale, there was a whole corral full of camels just waiting for their time to shine. 25 camels joined 44 soldiers, a dozen wagons, and almost 100 dogs and mules as they worked their way west. Each camel could tote around 700 pounds without slowing down, often going over rocks and sand that would bring the horses to a halt. They ate very little and performed reliably, earning them a potential position among the United States military's other animal forces. When a new road needed to be built, the camels were there to carry materials and surveyors from site to site. By the Civil War, however, the camel experiment had hit a major roadblock. Some were captured by Confederate troops and abused, or even killed. Technology had also come a long way in that time, and the camels were becoming less necessary. Eventually, no one knew what to do with the remaining stock anymore. So they were sold at auction, often to circuses or private ranches. Kids attending the circus had never seen a camel up close, and the animals drew large crowds for a while. But when the crowds stopped coming, the owners didn't sell them or donate them to local zoos. Instead, they let them loose into the wild. For decades, these camels roamed the deserts of California and New Mexico, the last one reportedly passing away in April of 1934 in Los Angeles. It was 80 years old. The U.S. Army Camel Corps was a short-lived idea with a lot of potential. And think, all it really needed were supporters who could see the bigger picture and help it get over the final hump into mainstream use. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.